The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come into your presence now again, another Sunday. Thankful for your word. Thankful for your son. Thankful for your gospel. Thankful for the spirit that comes and empowers your gospel and has been empowering for thousands of years. So Lord, come now again. Help me to speak clearly. Empower me to speak clearly. Help us hear what you have to say to us and change us from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you're going to have to get ready to, to buckle up. Uh, Act 16 is a little bit like a parade. You wander to the location. It starts out slowly. You wait for a long time. And then when the parade hits, it's on. <laughs> and you're handing out water and candy and flyers to everyone that you go by. Uh, so if you, weren't, if you weren't with us yesterday, we had the chance, just a beautiful chance to, to walk in this Panaprog parade. And I just couldn't help but think of Act 16 and just think, I wonder what our little acts of love to the community, our gospel witness might do in these south suburbs as I was thinking about this chapter and looking at the, the streets lined with faces of some believers and some unbelievers. So pray for that effort that happened yesterday. And if you're here today, we handed out a lot of welcomes. If you're here from that parade, we'd love to talk to you afterwards and, and just get to meet you and know how God is working in your life. So let's dive in here uh, to the text. Last week, pa- Pastor Daniel did a great job just unpacking this painful split of these two brothers in the Lord. Uh, close friends, partners in ministry, Paul and Barnabas. And as we got to the end of that text, what we saw was Barnabas sail off with Mark and Paul depart with Silas, commended by the brothers in Antioch to the grace of the Lord. If you read Acts 16, in the first five verses of Acts 16, we see Paul add one member to the team. It's Paul and Silas and Timothy going through Derby and Lystra and other cities, delivering the news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, without the addition of circumcision or the keeping of the law. And if you're wondering how was that going, it says the churches were strengthened in the faith and the numbers were increasing daily. In other words, this second missionary journey is going to plan and is extremely successful at first glance. And so we might say, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And yet, (laughs) that's not what happens in our text today. So maybe you're here today and you've experienced something like this. You've had a, a clear vision for something. Right? You felt compelled to do something, and then the door kind of slams in your face unexpectedly, and you're left wondering, what, what is going on? Kids, maybe you've had something you were really looking forward to, all of a sudden canceled. We stopped in the last year telling our kids anything was going to happen <laughs> and surprised them with everything because we just couldn't stand disappointing them anymore because Every one of us had experiences like that in the last year. We thought we were going here. We thought we were doing this. This was a good thing. And then it was canceled. 
Well, that happens in this text. It says twice in verses 6 to 7 that the Holy Spirit would not allow them to speak the word in these places they had planned to go. We've talked often in Acts about how the Holy Spirit's empowering their speaking, leading them to speak, taking them here to speak, and then here we see sometimes the Holy Spirit says, no, you don't get to speak there. Now we don't know, like many things in Acts, how this happened. Was it a, was it a vision? Was it a heads up from an insider there that said, don't come here right now? But what we do know is something that was going well and was bearing fruit and seemed to be a good thing was suddenly halted by the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you have a category in your heart for that being a merciful and good thing from God. I wonder if we have that category in kind of our world of one-click, on-demand, Netflix, whatever I want, whenever I want to get it kind of world. But this is what the Holy Spirit does for the people of God. Right? Through various means and measures, He directs and He leads. Sometimes we marvel that He opens doors we didn't expect to open, and sometimes we weep that He closes doors we expect would be opened. So if you're here today and you're feeling doors slammed or you're feeling confusion about your life or your purpose or your plans right now, keep reading, keep listening. Because as this door is slammed, a vision comes to Paul from a man of Macedonia to head there instead. And what happens is that this journey that they thought was meant to go and to strengthen now is a journey to go and expand, to actually bring the gospel to what we now know as Europe. So this is kind of moving now from Asia. Now we see the gospel begin to move in this beachhead in Macedonia into Europe, and the God of the gospel is keeping his promise to take the gospel to the ends of the earth through canceled plans and the forbidding of the Holy Spirit. And then notice that even when the Spirit in surprising and sudden sudden ways, has us leave good and sweet things behind, he's always doing it for the good of his name, (laughs) the good of his people, and his glory. And then notice the solid anchor amidst the subjective leading. What is that? It's the Word of God. In other words, what were they doing originally on this journey? They were preaching the Word of God, strengthening the churches. What were they doing when their plans changed and they went somewhere else? Preaching the Word of God, right? Speaking the Gospel, right? So as, as, as I said to the worship team before, they said, so what's this sermon about in Acts? I said, well, the Gospel's going to go forth. The Spirit's going to empower it. People are going to be saved and come to know Jesus like it keeps happening in Acts. What is their joy and their hope and anchor and persecution and suffering as their plans change, the gospel of the Savior that came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died a death we deserve to die, rose again to conquer death, ascended to the right hand of God to reign, and sent His Spirit to continue to work and teach among them. And so this story in Acts 16 is the story of how this solid, unchanging gospel message saves and shapes a people by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Let's dive in and look at these characters in this 
story. So point number one is verses one to five. Timothy saved and shaped by Jesus. So Paul is left with Silas. They get to Derby and Lystra. There they find a disciple named Timothy. And it says he was son of a Jewish woman that was a believer, but whose father was Greek. And Paul wants him to come with on this journey because he was well spoken of by the brothers. So Paul's building a team. He needs all the help he can get. And we'll find out later that Timothy was like a son to Paul. This relationship, this partnership built. And we also know that Timothy must have served faithfully at Philippi. Here's what it says in Philippians 2.20 to 22 about Timothy. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. What's Timothy like? What has the gospel done in his heart? It says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. So here we have this, this duo. We have Paul, right? The, the, the persecutor turned into preacher. And then we have Timothy. And the gospel had invaded the life of Timothy's family. First invaded the life of his grandmother, Lois, and his mom, Eunice. We find that out in 2 Timothy 1.5. And been passed on to him. This is just a a sweet miracle. Sometimes we take for granted the little things, the daily monotonous things in life, but here we have moms and grandmas, whether physical or spiritual, we see your love and your passing on of the gospel to those around you is how pastors and missionaries are raised up for the cause of Christ. If you're a mom or a grandma and you're thinking, my life is monotonous, it's boring, it's hard, right? I'm just doing all these things, changing diapers, disciplining, it's just gets old, just think, this is how the gospel moves forward. Your work is not in vain. Your work is vital to the mission. And Timothy, by the witness of his mom and grandma, was saved by grace. This is as miraculous as what happens with the jailer. We should never be bored with grace. Is this anyone's story in here? Mom and grandma, parents or grandparents that told you about Jesus and you came to know Jesus? Anyone's story? Raise your hand. This is how it happens <laughs> much of the time, and that is amazing grace. We just saying, right, would you be enthroned on a thousand generations? Would your, would your name be enthroned in the praises of a thousand generations? That's what we want, to pass on the faith that our kids would know Jesus, and that was Timothy's story. And the grace that saved him transformed him to not care about his own interests, but the interests of Jesus Christ. This is what marks true love. This is what should mark the church. We can't truly love anyone with the love of Jesus if we care only about our own interests. Right? That's obvious. But maybe what's not obvious is that we also can't truly love someone if we're catering to their interests to their desires. Instead, here it says, true love and service to God comes as we seek the interests and desires of Christ for one another. And we see this mark Timothy's ministry. 
In other words, what we should want as Christians is to say, how do I help you get to what Christ wants for you? How do I help get you where Christ wants to see you grow into what Christ would have for your life, the, all that God would want you to be in Christ, not just what do I want for me or what do you want for you, but what does Christ want for us? And we see this right away in his ministry, in Timothy's ministry. Paul has just said and defended in Acts 15 that for those who had, had circumcision to the law as a way of salvation, he said, over my dead body. We are not adding anything to the gospel But now, so that they will not give unnecessary offense to the gospel, he circumcises Timothy just six verses later. And Timothy does it, showing his concern not mainly for himself, but for the cause of Christ. The gospel proclamation would have happened like Paul normally did, first in the synagogues, and for Timothy to go into those synagogues meant he would have had to be circumcised. And so Timothy and Paul decide together that they will lay down his rights and preferences for the sake of the gospel. And this is a message to us that there are ways we can lay down our rights and our preferences that do not compromise the message or integrity of the gospel in order to reach others with the gospel, to become all things to all people that we might win some. We should be eager to do so, not eager to cling to our rights in our preferences. So Timothy's character, one in the story that was saved and shaped by the gospel. Point number two is Lydia, saved and shaped by Jesus. Look at verses 11 to 15. We walk through verses 6 to 10 where the Spirit slammed one door and opened another, and the door that was opened was to head towards Macedonia by boat. So they get there and they dock at a port called Neapolis, And then they head to Philippi, which was about 10 miles inland. And Philippi was a colony of Rome. And therefore, what you would expect to find in Philippi in these colonies was a place that looked like a mini Rome. That was their goal. It was kind of their their badge, their identity. They shared the customs and the laws and the religions of Rome, which meant there would be a vast array of Greek gods, and that would mark the city. And to be a Roman colony was a badge of honor an identity for any who lived there. And therefore, these colonies were marked often with prosperity, wealth, power, and excess in all sorts of ways. Financial, sexual, all these ways. They just were this place where we get to do whatever we want. We're a colony of Rome. Well, the missionary team gets there, and it says they remain some days. And then it says in verse 13 that they go down to the river on the Sabbath, looking for a place of prayer. This probably means there was no synagogue in the city. This probably means there were less than 10 Jewish men in the city, which was the number needed to make up a synagogue. And they're probably by the river to be able to carry out any of the washings or rituals that went along with the Jewish faith. And as they get there, they find a group of women gathered to worship and pray And for whatever reason, our text zeroes in on one specifically named Lydia. It says, This woman is a a seller of purple goods from Thyatira. Now Thyatira, if you go back and and read about it, was known for its high-end clothing industry. This is where the, the elites of society got their clothes made, and Lydia is coming from there. So likely she was a very successful, wealthy 
powerful woman, likely a single woman because it says she owns her own house, or a married woman who has homes in two different cities. So in our day and age, you'd be like, right, I got my home in L.A. and I got my home in New York City. I'm going back and forth for the the high-end fashion industry. So here she is, and at some point, this woman had left the idea of multiple gods of the Roman culture and was here as a worshiper of God, which probably means she had ascribed to the way of the Jewish religion, but she doesn't yet know Jesus. Because in verse 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she's saved. And in verse 15, she is baptized. If you're wondering, what was this like? What was the gospel breaking into here? Well, maybe you've been around someone that just has different financial categories than you can even imagine. That's Lydia. That's who this is. A rich, powerful, moral, religious, Gentile, fashion executive is saved by the gospel. Right? That's what happens. Right? So, and we should have our minds blown here because we know the story of the rich young ruler. Right? All these riches and he walked away. Right? What's impossible with man though is what? Possible with God. And that's what we see here in Acts 16. And I'll just say it. We, most of us in this room, are rich (laughs) compared to the rest of the world. Maybe this is someone's story in this room. You had some morals. You went to church. You lived in a relatively comfort, comfortable and peaceful and wealthy kind of way. And then Jesus broke in and said, you have all this world, but you don't yet have me. Right? You don't have me. You've not yet realized you're a sinner in need of my saving work because you have everything else. Or maybe that's you today. You're, you're here today and you realize even right now, like I've been coming to church, I've been living a comfortable life, I've been trying to live the right way, I've been trying to do better and do more and figure out who God is and trying to obey Him, but I'm realizing I don't yet have Jesus. I'm a sinner that needs Jesus. Or let me ask you this question. Do you know any well-to-do people that are moral and keeping some form of religion but don't yet know and love Jesus. We live in the suburbs. You all know them. They're your neighbors and your friends. They're on your soccer teams, at your dance studios, and in your, in your clubs, and in the different things that you do. This is what's all around us. right? Well-meaning, generally moral people, Money, good jobs, exposed to some spirituality, yet who don't know Jesus. So, so what do we do with people like that? We pray for them and speak the gospel to them. We pray to them and speak the gospel to them. And notice again here that not only was Lydia saved by the gospel, but she was shaped almost immediately by the gospel she immediately sees her wealth, her means, her resources as a way to serve the cause of Christ as she welcomes them to stay in her home. 
Right? The welcome of Jesus into salvation changes her heart to want to welcome others into her home. The welcome of Jesus into salvation says, hey, I want to welcome you in here. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The generosity of the gospel of grace transforms her to immediately be generous. In fact, as we read about the church of Philippi in Macedonia later in the New Testament, one of the marks of it is its great financial generosity that starts moment one with the founding member. So let me just say this. If you're here today, you're successful and have means, there's no need to be ashamed of that or pretend like you don't. Like sometimes in in Christianity, we're like, don't want to talk about people that have lots of money. And I just want to say, go make all the money you can. (laughs) Ethically, morally, righteously, And then let your wealth be poured out for the cause of Christ. As a reflection of the riches of Christ poured out on us, he became poor that we might become rich in him. The gospel saved and shaped this wealthy, moral, spiritually interested woman and that we would pray that God would shave and shape many more like her in these suburbs that would pour out resources for the gospel that would go to the ends of the earth. Oh, that God would do that and those people are They're all around us. They are all the people that we know in our neighborhoods. Point number three here, a city shaken and seething towards Jesus in verses 16 to 21. So they're staying with Lydia now. They're ministering, and here in verses 16 to 21, they're headed back to the place of prayer. And on their way, they're met by a slave girl with a spirit of divination whose owners use her to make money for her fortune-telling. So just uh, imagine the sad state she's in. She's, she's possessed by an evil spirit, and people are taking advantage of that to make money for themselves. She's not rich. She's a slave. She doesn't have two homes, one in L.A. and one in New York. She has no homes. She's being oppressed by others for their gain. She's being oppressed by the devil for his schemes, and she's following Paul and his team around for many days. So what is she saying? She's saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, at face value, that sounds pretty good. Right? Who doesn't like a good amen from the congregation as you're preaching? But it might not be that simple. It might not be that simple. And I'll give you two options. One of the options is that the phrase, the Most High God, could have been easily misunderstood in this context, in this place, in this Roman colony, to refer to Zeus. In other words, she could actually be promoting a many gods mentality, even though it sounds like a good thing. Number two, A more literal translation actually is translated a way of salvation rather than the way of salvation. In other words, this girl could be promoting Paul and his team as servants of one God among many and offering one way of salvation among many rather than promoting them as the servant of the one true God and the way of salvation through Jesus. That's one option. The other option is is that because she has this spirit that really does allow her to predict things, that's how they make money, she's actually saying true things, like other demon-possessed people do in the Gospels. And Paul at some point just goes, it's enough. 
I won't put up with an evil spirit anymore. I won't put up with a distraction anymore. It's no, I know it's not genuine and it's not coming from a good place. Perhaps Paul himself is confused for a while about what's going on because he lets it go on, it says, for days. Not hours, but days. Either way, eventually Paul, it says, is annoyed. He's frustrated. He's sick of it. He's not going to put up with it anymore. And in the name of Jesus, he commands this evil spirit to come out. And like evil spirits do, they obey Jesus. It should be encouraging, right? In the movies we see, we often see the devil and God, right? In these exorcism movies, like they're almost equal. And that's not what we find in the scriptures. The evil spirits obey God. They do what Jesus says. Now this text doesn't tell us she was saved or baptized, but we do know that she apparently didn't go back to her fortune-telling ways because her owners are furious that their means of gain from her is gone. And so I just found myself hoping this week that this means that instead of being filled again with more worse evil spirits like we hear about in the gospel, when one spirit goes away and nothing else fills that space, more evil ones come, I found myself hoping that she's filled with the Holy Spirit and follows Jesus, the one who set her free from her oppression. But either way, the power of Jesus is at play here. And the power of Jesus is at play in a very different person. I mean, could there be anyone more different than Lydia? Right? Perhaps this is you. Poor, oppressed, you've been taken advantage of, you don't have much power, you don't have much wealth, you don't have much comfort, and you just wonder if anyone sees you. Well, Jesus breaks in powerfully in situations like this as well. He sees you and he cares, and his power will work for your good. Well, as this happens, and this little slave girl is delivered, and the people see that this Jesus character might ruin their financial gain and their comfort and their power, they bring them before the rulers, the magistrates, and as we've often seen, they make accusations, the crowd joins in, and the magistrates tear off their clothes and beat them with rods. And this is what happens when idols are being torn down. <laughs> right? People get angry and they fight and they scratch and they claw to maintain their comfort and their idolatries. But we see here in this text that Jesus is more powerful than darkness. Jesus is more powerful than the idolatries of our cities, the dark places of our cities that bring financial gain. Right? Jesus is more powerful than the pull of pornography that brings in billions of dollars. I've been praying this week that Jesus would break into some of your lives, even in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit and destroy the pull of pornography for you that brings in billions and billions of dollars and oppresses young women like this. I've been praying that Jesus would break in and and ruin... (laughs) the pull of Planned Parenthood or of human trafficking that happens just yards up that hill from us or the drunkenness and gambling that I'm learning is 
prevalent in these south suburbs. These oppressive things tied to financial gain that our society wants to hold on to and cling to and prop up. But Jesus means to break in and shine the light on and save by the power of the gospel. I've been praying that Jesus would break into our neighborhoods and our nations and our homes as we bring the gospel to bear by the power of the Spirit and that He would shine light into darkness and break the chains of oppression and darkness and sin and that as we are His instruments and get into the mess of all that, that we would be ready to suffer for His name, knowing Jesus is worth it. So what happens after this? They're beat, clothes torn off, and they're sent off to prison and they order the jailer to keep them, which leads them to point number four, this jailer that is saved and shaped by Jesus. So as we read this, we should just note that the jailer puts them in the worst part of prison. Now, not all prisons were exactly the same, but we know Romans were good at torture and pain when it came to their punishment, and the innermost prison was often at the lowest part of the prison, and often what would happen is uh, human... uh, human feces and everything else, waste would drain down to that part. They'd put you in stocks. You couldn't move. So you'd literally be sitting in human waste in a painful position and you couldn't move. You couldn't lay down and so often people couldn't sleep. So he puts them in the, in the worst place. He puts them in the most painful position. And what we know about this jailer is that almost certainly he was a former soldier of Rome given this post after his service in the in the soldier or in the in the army. And these soldiers were known for their cruelty and their anger. They were tough and hardened, and they were commended in their line of duty for being severe. And in verse 25, uh, as they've been put in the worst part of the prison, their feet in the stocks, probably sitting in human waste of some kind, we find Paul and Silas praying and singing. We just think about that for a little bit. Maybe think about it this week. And it says the prisoners are listening. It's likely that the jailer is listening as well. Can you imagine, just trying to think of what it would be like, this hardened soldier who's like, I'm going to put you in the worst part. You're going to sit in human waste. I'm going to put you in stocks. You're going to be miserable. You're not getting out of my prison. I've heard about the other prisons. You're going to suffer And here they are at midnight hearing joyful prison praises. I've been praying that we'd be a people that sing in the dark nights and sad situations of life because we know we still have Jesus. So even when we feel trapped in life, we are completely free forever. To be the kind of people that, as people hear us sing and praise and pray, would go, Jesus must be real. So the jailer's hearing that, the prisoners are hearing that, and by this point in the book of Acts, we all know what happens when God's people are imprisoned. An earthquake, right? That's what happens. You want to have an earthquake? Lock up God's people. So an earthquake happens, foundations shake, doors open, bonds undone once again, and this event was so catastrophic that the jailer just assumes all the prisoners are gone. So we don't know how bad it was, but it was so bad that he's just assuming they're gone. 
And when you lost prisoners, it was your life for theirs. And remember, Luke's thinking we've been reading a story. Right? Caleb preached about a month ago or so. The last time we saw prisoners escape, what happened to the guards? They lost their lives. So this guard is thinking, it's my life for theirs. So rather than wait for his superiors to take his life, he's going to take it himself. That's what's going on here. That's the, the graphicness of this text in Luke. Luke is not holding back. You can just imagine the place of despair he was in. How hopeless he must have felt. How ashamed he felt. Perhaps you're here today and you're despairing and you're hopeless and you're ashamed. Circumstances have gotten out of control. You failed miserably. What would Luke say? Well, what happens next is Paul calls out to him that they're all still there and not to harm himself. (laughs) So here's the amazing thing about this, right? You, you You want an earthquake, lock up God's people. But what's amazing is that we find out that this earthquake was not for the prisoners to escape from jail. It was for the jailer to escape from the punishment of his sins. What an amazing reason for an earthquake. <laughs> right? He comes and he falls before them and he says, what must I do to be saved? Right? So something's going on. He, remember, he's probably seen all the events of the day. He's seen the events in the city. He's heard the singing. So I think he's going, this God they sing to, this God they pray to, this God who sent an earthquake and this mercy I'm being shown is making me wonder, how do I have what they have? How do I get this salvation? How do I get this joy? And they speak the gospel to him and to all his family and the whole family. Here's the gospel and this hardened, likely angry jailer who was so full of shame and despair that he was about to take his own life is set free from the prison of his sin and brought into eternal life and joy forever. He and his family are baptized as they hear the gospel and believe. He's forgiven in a moment for all the harsh, angry, torturous brutality that he's committed over all these years. Paul knows something about that. It's the kind of people that God saves. And not only is he saved by Jesus, but again, he's immediately shaped by Jesus. The one who inflicted wounds put them in the worst place put them in the most painful position, is now rejoicing in the gospel with his household and washing their wounds. Trying to imagine what that would have been like. I mean, I'm just imagining this angry, hardened, tough soldier and all that his family has seen of him over all these years, all the anger and trauma he's brought home from war. Right? We just see that in him in this story. And here he is. Can you imagine the scene? The jailer, the former soldier, bent down, washing their fresh, fresh wounds rather than letting them fester in the worst part of the prison. Right? This is illegal what he's doing. You can't take prisoners out of prison. And he takes them out and he washes their wounds. And after their wounds are cared for, what do they do? sit down and they eat together. You remember what it would have been like for Judy with the Gentile just a few chapters ago. And here we see them sitting down and eating together, Jew and Gentile, prisoners and jailer. And what do they do as they eat together? They fellowship and rejoice in Jesus together. Can you believe it? We're saved. 
I was about to take my own life, and then, and then you just told me the gospel, and now I have eternal life. This is how the gospel saves and shapes a very strange family. Right? This is not a meal that was planned before nightfall. But this is what God does. This is what the gospel does. This is how it unites a people. So the application is just that, a strange people saved and shaped by Jesus. What we've seen is that the gospel breaks into save through the faithful proclamation of moms and grandmas. We should praise God for His grace. The gospel breaks into rich, powerful, powerful, affluent, moral, and comfortable lives to save. The gospel breaks into situations of oppression and poverty and demon possession to save. The gospel breaks into the lives of angry, cruel, ashamed, and despairing people to save. And the gospel that saves shapes. The grace that saves shapes. It makes us care not about our own interests, but the interests of Christ. It shapes a people to be hospitable and generous and set free from darkness and self-giving and gentle and rejoicing in Jesus and singing in the darkest of nights. The story of Acts 16 is the story of the gospel that was debated and defended in Acts 15, breaking in and saving people and shaking a city by the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. The story of Acts 16 is the story of King Jesus, Acts 1-1, continuing to work and to teach, to save and shape a strange people that had very little in common except the joy, rest, and hope they share in Jesus. Go read the book of Philippians where this church is written to. This church, Paul considered partners in the gospel, held them dear in his heart because of their partnership in the gospel with him from the first day until now. And the founding members appear to be a wealthy woman, a slave girl, and a jailer. <laughs> that's a strange way to start a church. Right? That's, a, that's a group of people that make you nervous getting together. But the story of Acts 16 is the story of the supremacy of God in all things, spreading for the joy of all sorts of people through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Right? It's the same old story of the world full of sin and idols and comforts that make it hate the gospel and the gospel invading and overturning the strongholds of that world and turning enemies into brothers and sisters. It's the same old story of the self-authenticating nature of the gospel authenticated by the beauty of the transformed hearts of the people it saves. It's the story of a people led by the Spirit, anchored in the gospel of Jesus, who just keep following him, just keep singing his praises in the darkest of nights, just keep trusting him when he changes our plans and we just carry his name wherever we are. It's the story of a people saved from every different walk of life you could imagine and united in the name of Jesus stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's a story of a people shining the light of Christ in joyful songs into the darkness around them rather than yelling bitterly at it. Have you thought of that? I mean, what would you be saying in that jail cell, sitting in human waste, in the stocks, unable to move, and you shouldn't be there, you didn't do anything wrong? Would you be singing? Or would you be shouting bitter, angry things at the jailer? 
It's a story of the people who know they were saved by grace and grace alone, saved from their empty morality, saved from their empty riches, saved from ugly oppression and sin, saved from anger and cruelty and bitterness, and therefore, because they've been saved by grace alone from all those things, they long to see others hear the good news of forgiveness of sins, cleansing of shame, and eternal life and joy in the presence of King Jesus now and forever. May our God do Acts 16 in our neighborhoods and to the nations as the gospel of Jesus is empowered by the Spirit through a people, a strange people, from all walks of life who just want others to know him. Let me pray. So Father, as we come now to the, to the table, we long to see you do this again. We long to see your gospel run as you empower your people by the Spirit, as you open doors and as you close doors. Lord, as we're about to come to this table, maybe there's someone in here today or a few people in here today who have never trusted in Jesus yet. Lord, I pray now would be the moment of salvation. Today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would trust Him, that they would lay down their, their moralism, they'd lay down all their shame from oppression or from oppressing others, and they would come and receive the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes open in our neighborhoods to to share and speak the gospel, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for the affluent around us, to pray for the, the poor and oppressed around us, to pray for the angry and bitter and ashamed around us. I pray for moms and grandmas and dads and grandpas and spiritual moms and dads to just make much of Jesus in our little spheres of influence and that many would be saved. And Lord, I pray that you would shape us by the gospel. Help us look not to our own interests, but to the interests of Christ. Make us self-giving, humble, generous, hospitable people that rejoice even in the darkest of times. Lord, thank you for saving us. Save more by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, as we come to the table now, help us lay down every weight in sin which clings so closely and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run this race set before us. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.